Steve, keep me well Hello, welcome to episode 8 of the Lairera podcast. I'm David Smith and I'm joined today by Oren Fitzpatrick, Franny Walsh and Podge Gaffney. Today we're going to be discussing Irish author Louise Nealon's debut novel Snowflake, which is the number one bestseller in the Irish charts at the moment. Franny, how are you? How's your weekend going? Um, grand enough now, yeah. It's getting fairly hot here. It's kind of up against 30 every day, so it's nearly getting to the stage where it's actually too hot to do things rather than being not hot enough to do them. But um, I was planning on doing a big walk this weekend at some point, but I ended up kind of picking picking up a bit of a cough, so I said I'd leave it off. But um, my plan was to walk to Sitges, which is like 41 kilometers away from Barcelona. So it's like down the beach. But um, kind of the motivation behind that was that I had first casually suggested to someone and they said I wouldn't be able to do it. So like since they said that, I've decided that I kind of have to do it now. So it's uh, it's getting scheduled in for some later date, but not this weekend, unfortunately. Nothing like a bit of old fashioned water for its stubbornness there, Franny. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Podge, how's life? How are you? Well, lads, yeah, I'm all good. Um, uh, yeah, busy enough weekend of it. Um, just a few beers after work on Friday with some some of the lads in work, and then met some of the some of my mates in town yesterday as well. Watched some of the football. So, um, yeah, all good. Going home to Navin today for Father's Day. So after after this, and um, yeah, other than that, quite enough. Uh, finishing up now next Friday for summer, which is unreal. Um, and then the career break kicks in. So. I have to really start making these plans on what I'm going to do uh, in the coming months. But uh, no, very exciting. What about you, Oren? Any news? I'm back after my uh, technical malfunctions. Life is good. Um, it's pretty wet here in Sydney, so it was a quiet weekend. Um, we were actually meant to have the first round of championship. And uh, there was a bit of an outbreak, a couple of cases on the eastern suburbs of Sydney, which is Irish hotspots. So they actually cancelled all the championship football um, I think they were a little bit scared of a bit of an outbreak in the Irish community and the optics around that. So um, made for a very quiet weekend. So to be honest, chilled out, sat inside, attempted to go for a run today and washed out of it. So well, a bit tired of it. Uh, what about yourself, Smith? Yeah, all good. Uh, pretty similar. Yeah, the weather has been fairly horrendous in Sydney, as you mentioned. So I uh, had a pretty quiet weekend. Had a soccer match Friday night, which we lost, unfortunately. Um yeah, and then just did a bit of shopping and uh, went for a bit of food and stuff for the rest of the weekend. Nothing too hectic. Just uh, watching a lot of the Euros. I was up at uh, 5 a.m. to watch England-Scotland in the pub the other day, so that was a bit of crack. Anyone who listens to the podcast will know that usually one of us gives a brief synopsis of whatever book we're covering at the start of the episode. This week we decided to go one step further and bring in a very special guest to do the honours for us. So my name is Louise Nealon and I am the author of Snowflake. Snowflake is a coming of age story about a girl from a dairy farm in rural Ireland who um, goes to college and is trying to find her feet. Uh, Her mom believes that she's able to dream other people's dreams and she thinks that she's passed this ability on to Debbie, her daughter who's the main character and Debbie has quite a strained relationship with her mother but she is <laughs> gets on really well with her uncle Billy who lives in a caravan down the back of her house uh, down the back of the garden so Billy kind of is trying to give Debbie advice um, and keep her on the straight and narrow throughout the, the book. 
I'm absolutely delighted to announce that Louise herself is joining us for today's episode to discuss Snowflake and answer all our questions about the book. Louise, massive welcome to the Lower Era podcast. It's really yeah. nerve wracking having like a, a Zoom call like with your name on it. Yeah, listen, thanks. Thanks a million for taking the time. I uh, really appreciate it. I suppose the last few weeks slash months have been mad, I'm sure, for you. How's, how's that been for you? How have you handled that? Kind of, what kind of feelings has that brought on? Yeah, I don't really know how I've handled it. Um, I suppose I look back on this time and sort of like, not force a narrative onto it, but the benefit of hindsight now. But at the minute, I've a very bad short-term memory. So people are always asking me, like, how, how's it going? And what have you done this week? And what are you doing next week? And I've just, I've no idea. Like, I'd be lost without my diary. But it's been more excitement than I've ever had in, in my entire life. I've, I've quite a bad uh, relationship. No, I have a very good relationship with sleep. I really like my bed. Um, and I was complaining to my mom there that I haven't been able to sleep. And she, she was trying to tell me that that was a good thing. Because <laughs> I'm just excited <laughs> about life. <laughs> which is nice but yeah it's it's overwhelming but really great just to talk talk to people on a level that I'm actually not used to talking about myself as a writer I, I usually kind of um hide that away like in in you nearly think of a, like a writer in the family as being like not as bad as a drug addict but like nearly because they just like take all your money and like give you excuses and say that they're going to get a job and make all these promises that they never keep. So yeah, it's it's been, I feel like I'm getting away with something, definitely. Um, and someone's going to tap me on the shoulder every time I get an email. Do you know that sound into your um, inbox being like, Dum-dum. I'm like, okay, this is someone like finding me out. I'm going to get in trouble now. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great otherwise. What kind of advice would you have for other Irish writers? Like, I'm sure a lot of young budding writers are looking at people like you and really being inspired. Yeah, thanks a million. I would say, in my experience, the lower the self-esteem of of the writer, the better the writer they are. So um, if you feel awful about your work and you don't want to show it to anybody, that's a very good indicator that you actually might have something um, okay um writing doesn't happen by by magic um and even like I'm quite embarrassed about my writing and I don't I find it weird that other people want to read it um because for a long time my mother was the only person who who read my book and every podcast I'm on I always say that my mother is not the mother in this book um she's a lady um and keeps her clothes on um but uh she was the only person really who wanted or was interested in in what I was reading um apart from like people obviously like writer friends and stuff um so advice that I would give is to make friends with other writers um I think Maeve Binchy said something about don't talk to other writers they're your competition and that's one of the few things that Maeve Binchy said that I disagree with um I think that like all of my writer friends have taught me maybe more than any course that I've gone on or, or a workshop or like I did a master's up in Queens and it was actually the people that I met there in the course, the students, not the teachers who, even though the teachers were great and um, not dissing anybody, but um, 
it's your it's the people around you who are trying to do the same thing and and finding it just as heartbreakingly difficult as as you are that that kind of keeps keep you going um and it doesn't matter if it's good or bad as long as you keep at it um yeah that would be my advice yeah that's really interesting yeah a question i wanted to ask was it was there any like irish writer i suppose maybe writer in general that you would regard as being an influence i suppose maybe in general on you as a writer and like particularly with this book then as well yeah loads um I would say the main one would be Dermot Healy. He wrote uh, a goat song, which is class. And he also wrote Long Time No See. And there's a great relationship between like a young lad who's just after doing his leave insert and an older guy who lives on his own. He calls him his uncle, but he's not his uncle. That very much informed the relationship between Billy and Debbie in, in the novel. And his sense of dialogue and style, I kind of, I really, really liked when I read that book, I was like, okay, this is something, I found something in it that was kind of like a mirror to how I saw the world. So I tried to do like my own version of that. Um, so Dermot Healy was really helpful. Other people, Marion Keys, of course, an absolute icon. I actually listened to a podcast when I was like really like depressed um, when I was like 18, 19, 20. I, I sort of saw her like as someone to aspire to be because she was quite open about her past and how like she was in rehab and stuff and she was very depressed and and then she found writing and that kind of gave her life um and that's something that I I sort of like hung on to that saw that that's where like I could possibly be like in a kind of fantasy world but I just kept reaching for it Um, and if she didn't exist I don't think I would have that same ambition to want to be a, a writer Edna O'Brien, she, she's just a hero. She's like 90 years old and she's just still writing and is just a iconic. Roddy Doyle, Kevin Barry. It must feel incredible for you then, Louise, to see like Marion Keyes and Roddy Doyle and these people like uh, recommending your book so highly. Yeah, um, so the Marion Keyes quote actually came in because I, I didn't know, my publishers didn't tell me that they were sending it to these people. So um, probably it's just to protect me because if I knew that it was in Roddy Doyle's house, I'd be on my publisher every hour of the day wondering, has he fixed up yet? But yeah, so the Marion Keyes quote came in Christmas Day um, and it was like the best Christmas present that I could have ever gotten. Very surreal. Like we had, we had cans in the middle of lockdown when Roddy Doyle gave me the quote. It was just like, re, like reasons to celebrate, like during a pandemic, which we didn't really get an awful lot of. Um, so yeah, I really just kind of kept, kept my family going. And, but I still don't think it's, it's, it's not really settling in as, as real life yet. Um, but yeah, they've been absolutely great. They read so much, so many new books as well, and they're so generous in, in giving people quotes. And it's one of the things that I really admire about them. Like aside from their work on the page, they do an awful lot of work off the page as well, um, and they don't have to. That's brilliant to have that support. Yeah, I suppose if we kind of delve into the book a little bit, Louise, would you have any personal connections to any characters or? More specifically, like, did you pick like little bits from different characters, from stories you like, from movies, whatever, to kind of develop um, the characters in the book? Yeah, um, so the characters sort of come, they come weirdly. 
Um, they they were in loads of different stories that weren't very good. Um, and I kind of robbed them from a story and tried to, so Debbie was in a different story altogether. And so was Billy, he was in a different story. And then I kind of did the scene with the caravan of them together. Um, and Billy actually came from, I sort of had, had a teenage obsession with um, Tommy Tiernan. Really wanted to be his friend. Um, I just wanted to go down to the pub and have points with Tommy Tiernan, but you can't do that as a 15 year old girl. Um, so the next best thing was to kind of do an invisible friend who, who I made him into like my version of, of what I imagined Tommy Tiernan to be. Um, but I think that's very much of a starting point. Um, similarly with like Maeve, there's parallels with Maeve and um, like I imagined like myself, everyone thinks Maeve's mental. <laughs> Maeve is like a projection of how mad I could see myself going in the future. Um, not like that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, how bad could it get? Um, if you had a child when you were 18 and if you didn't feel like the reality, like I had a real bad, I say bad because I, I still think that the dream element of the book doesn't quite work. And I had to, I felt like I had to give that dream obsession to Maeve um, in order to, to kind of contain it and let the other stuff around come out more. But I say that it was a projection of my future self. All of the stuff around Maeve, like say like her sexuality and the drinking of many wine bottles, that all comes like from my imagination. So, and the same with, with Billy and, and Debbie as well. Um, a lot of Xanthi actually comes from girls that I'm friends with and I'm like, how are you so perfect? Like, oh, wait. <laughs> but also I really love them as well. Um, and... And that female friendship always having like a tinge of, of jealousy to it, um, I thought was really interesting. And that like self-esteem thing that Debbie has. Yeah, so I think J.K. Rowling said that like, it's, it's a terrifying thought to see like all of yourself in, in your character. Like your characters are just a projection of yourself in different ways. Um, but I, I would open that up more and, and say that we're all, we kind of all reflect each other in, in different ways. Um, and I especially, I cling on to the bits that I find annoying about people or um, annoying or interesting or a bit dark and, and messed up. And then I, I put them into imaginative characters so I don't um, piss anybody off. And, and then that kind of gets me out of trouble. You know, I, I have zero conflict in, in my real life, but it, it's, it all happens on the page then. Yeah. How much of it then is based on your own experiences in Trinity, like coming from the countryside? Yeah. Um, so Debbie's first day in Trinity is basically my first day. Like I had to ask a guard where Trinity was and he laughed at me and I got a fine coming off the train and someone dressed as an avocado talked to me about joining the vegan society. And I, I told him I was a dairy farmer and he was absolutely appalled. I think there's, there's a thing, especially with Trinity, I didn't make any friends because all of my perceptions of other people was that they were, they were all stuck up or they had a problem and I felt very alienated. 
and then when I went to Queens to do my master's I I did I got the experience that I was expecting in Trinity where like I made friends for life and um but in, in Trinity yeah like the sitting in in the toilet cubicle for like waiting for a breather to go back out again and reading the graffiti on the on the back of the door that's very much my experiences and yeah and yeah like Debbie makes friends with Santi but I really didn't make friends with anyone <laughs> there was there was one girl um who was in my secondary school and she ended up being in the same year as me and uh we're actually better friends now than we were in college because we were we were trying to pretend to each other that we were actually okay um but yeah for the purposes of fiction Debbie kind of had, had to have someone to talk to in, in Dublin so uh, that's where it veers away from from my reality my reality was just sitting in the library yeah I was really interested Louise in like the whole dream the idea of the dreams I was just wondering where that came from thanks I so um yeah I had a teenage obsession with with dreams um I had a great English secondary school teacher actually who um introduced me to Carl Jung and so I, I read loads of Carl Jung and Freud um as like a gloomy uh depressed teenager and then when I started college I actually there's a theories of lit- literature model module in um in trinity and that freaked me out because we did psychoanalysis and it just opened opened the world up and intellectually in a way that i wasn't ready for um so i dropped out of college and um in that year that i dropped out i had like a really weird dream um that like i it was it was less the content of the dream and more the feeling that I was like outside of myself or um that I was like there was like I felt like I had no boundary from other people and that's kind of like a scary place to to be in uh, like nearly like you know to know someone who has like loads of empathy for other people like someone who's like watching EastEnders and they're just bawling crying for this character um I'm I'm that person um and I kind of had no sense of perspective or like um anchor in myself and so that that sort of um that was the inspiration for for the dreams um and then for plot wise they had to become prophecies um but yeah I'm not sure if it if it worked but it was the only way I could do it really um I'll try to do better in in the next one I think it definitely worked I thought it was really interesting I just want to ask, like, how, how long have you, have you been working on this novel? Have you had this idea for a long time? Um, yeah. Um, like since college um, or is it something more, more recent? Uh, so it was before college, actually. I got the idea when I was 18. So after I woke up from that weird dream, um, I basically <laughs> this is so embarrassing I went to my doctor and I was like yeah I had a really strange dream and he just put me straight on antidepressants um no first he, he like he told me to go to a psychiatrist for another more expensive conversation and then the psychiatrist put me on antidepressants um and then it was a uh, like 10 years of just changing different antidepressants um but the um, dream delusion sort of thing was uh not like nobody I had nobody to talk about it with 
Um, and I knew that it wasn't going to be taken seriously and I felt a bit embarrassed to even bring it up. Um, but I thought that it would make a great um, idea for a novel. Um, so I went to Trinity, uh, got a bit, um, got a bit of a culture shock, even though I only live like 40 minutes outside the city centre. Um, and then I dropped out and uh, my secondary school English teacher uh, brought me to lunch and uh, she was like, like, what, what do you want to do? And the reason why I went to Trinity was because like I just idolized her and she did English and philosophy in, in Trinity. So I was like, well, I'll do English and philosophy in Trinity and become an English teacher. Um, and then she, she said, like, what do you want to do? And I said, I, I want to write a novel. Um, and like that, I think it was that evening that I sent her the, the chapter of the novel, how it was then. And um, back then it was set in America and it was very different. Um, and there was different characters in it and stuff, but it, it always has been the same idea. Um, and it was that idea that like I chased through my twenties and it was the reason why I did English in college. Um, and it's the reason I became a writer really. Uh, and yeah, I, I thought that maybe I'd end up in like academia or I'd be a secondary school English teacher. Um, but I only had the one subject because um, I just did pure English when I went back. Um, but it was as time went on that I just became more attached to it. Um, and it became more important than me getting a pensionable job. <laughs> um, much to my mother's disappointment. Um, no, that's unfair. My, my, my mom, she was very supportive and um, kept on sending me like, she was the reason I did like my master's in, in Belfast and stuff. But there was always neighbours like sending my mom civil, civil service jobs and like just different jobs to get me out of the house. Um, and I did work in bookshops and I waitressed um, and milked cows with my dad. Uh, but the original idea for, for the novel was... I had it when I was 18 and I finished writing it when I was 29. Um, so it was 11 That's years. Mad. Wow. Yeah. So I find it mental how people, and it's a two book deal. Uh, so like, if I don't write another book, they can take all of the money away from me. Which is <laughs> <Right>. mental. <laughs> and I'm like, I have this really irrational fear that I won't write the second one. And uh, yeah. my sister is like, that's very irrational fear, actually, Louise. That, like, that could happen. It's like second <laughs> album, like like my, making a second album or whatever. Like, it's the same, same idea. Um, yeah. Yeah, like, is there a certain, like, time frame? Do publishers give you a certain you know deadlines or... and stuff yeah like yeah well like there's been no talk of that at the minute everyone's been really nice uh, and they are quite nice people um but I actually do feel ready to like write another one um and I'm in the middle of writing another one and it seems to be going quicker but I'll have no idea until I actually finish it um there's a lot that you can't control other than just sitting down and writing um yeah. And I know your your cards are probably close to your chest on the second book. Yeah. But is like, would you be able to say is it connected to Snowflake in any way, or is it completely uh, separate? Yeah, I can't. Like, it's like, do you know, like, um, 
like my sister's pregnant at the minute and do you know the way like you can't really say you're pregnant until like it's a viable pregnancy like after 12 weeks like I've been a year writing it and I I still can't say like exactly what it's about because okay. I'm just I'm still unsure whether it'll, like it'll completely just go away or just fall completely flat or fail so I, I'm I'm just being a uh yeah quite secretive about it um that's but, understandable yeah. Um, what can you can you tell us anything about the screen adaptation then for Snowflake, which is obviously very exciting news? Congratulations! Thanks, a million. Um, yeah, so that's that was bonkers. So I got that um, I got that news the same time that I got the book deal. So I got the book deal one week, and then it was like a week later that um, my agent Marianne, she's amazing. Um, She's the reason all of this happened. Like, if I didn't meet her, like, I wouldn't be talking to you at all. Um, like, I'd pay for people to publish my book. And I'm just so glad that I, like, I, because I'm really gullible as well. And um, I'm so glad that I bumped into her and when I did. Um, so, yeah, she gave uh, the manuscript, it wasn't even edited, uh, to Ed Guiney, who's a, uh, who's, head of Elman Pictures and um, he was like yep we'll take it and I was like what <laughs> um, so yeah that that was it, it is me mental um, and the best thing actually the last year best thing that I did was I had a chat like a zoom meeting with like loads of people from Elman Pictures um, and we were like discussing the book like really it was, it was like a book club, but for your own book. Um, and, and like, I had all the answers and it was really weird. Like they're asking me questions about the characters that wasn't necessarily on the page. And um, they were just trying to develop it like inside their heads. So I'm excited for what they're going to do with it. Um, especially after seeing the normal people adaptation, because I actually got the news before and I signed with them before normal people came out and then I watched normal people and I was like oh well like they like they were real talented bunch over there and they're really nice as well and um, really sound uh, so yeah it's all very early and um, there's no script as such yet um, and yeah it's all very tentative but good yeah it's good it's great to have yeah you mentioned normal people there. Are you are you kind of sick to death? Are people constantly talking to you about normal people? But do you see that yeah. yourself? Do you, do you see the like? Are there com definite comparisons? Um, no, I don't see myself in relation to Sally Rooney at all. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> for so long, for years, she's been the successful writer, um, and like I've always been a fan. Uh, like part of me is like, oh damn you for getting so successful uh but also you're great and write more books um but yeah so to be compared to her is really weird um very strange uh because i will it's kind of hard on my parents actually because i have quite a bad uh negativity bias i think everyone does um like i'd be quite hard on myself and the way that i see myself and yeah, it's been quite hard for my parents. Uh, read like I did a couple of articles for newspapers, and um, I'm getting sick of seeing myself everywhere as well. It's bad um, when you're annoying yourself. Um, but I 
I did a couple of articles about how I saw myself as a failure for years and years. And my parents were like, like you weren't really, a, like you, you were never really a failure. Like, and, and to some extent I still do. Um, so having the comparisons to Sally Rooney is really, uh, like I can't really compute that. Um, but I, I honestly don't see any comparisons. I, I think it's weird how people can have be the same gender and an age bracket and and people just kind of lump them together. Um, and yeah, especially with like people dismissing the book because it's set in Trinity is another thing. Um, where like a really, like uh, a guy that I really respect was like, yeah, I think I've read all of the Trinity novels now. And I was like, just cause I like, I put, I put like a few campus scenes in there doesn't mean like I'm like in a coven with loads of women writers being like, <laughs> like we're. Yeah. It's kind of lazy, isn't it? It's, it's like, it's like someone got the synopsis and heard a few buzzwords and instantly went, oh, it's Irish, it's Trinity. It's, yeah. you know, uh, fresher going to college and all of a sudden it's, oh, that's just like normal people. And like, yeah, bare bones fine. But like when you actually read the two books, they're not, they're quite, they're very different. You know what I mean? I think. The fact that it'll be on anyone's radar anyways, it's just like, I'll take it. Like, yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, Louise, thanks so much for, uh, yeah, um, coming on to Lower Hour and making your Lower Hour debut and sure when your next book's out, I'm sure you'll, you might join us again. Yeah, I'll come back with my tail between my legs being like, interview me again. And you'll be like, who are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks a million. Thanks so much, Louise. You're very good. Thank you. Bye. Have a good evening. You too. Yeah, so that was Louise. So massive thanks for Louise for joining us. That was a really interesting chat. And um, yeah, as I mentioned to her, lads, I found the dream section and that prophetic dream kind of storyline really interesting. And like, uh, I was wondering as well, I was think, maybe thinking about dreams after. I don't think I've had any prophetic ones, but I have had some funny like recurring dreams and stuff. I used to have one as a child, uh, an absolutely terrifying nightmare. I don't know if you've ever read the Goosebumps books by O.R.L. Stein, but I used yeah, to be a massive fan of them. Yeah, so scary, but so good when I was a child. Uh, there was one called A Scarecrow Walks at Midnight. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, Pod just nodding furiously I, here. I'm not sorry to interrupt you. I remember the Goosebumps game, the, the computer game, and it was so scary. And there was a scarecrow just like in like in the distance. And if you hovered your yeah. mouse over, it just was like, the scarecrow walks at midnight. And oh, <laughs> so scary. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading that. And he and like was triggered a bit of PTSD there saying that. Oh yeah, God. the kids are on the farm and they can see these scarecrows like moving in the corn, like twitching, whatever, and they think it's the wind. But basically the scarecrows fucking the scarecrows come alive at night, which is absolutely terrifying and like terrorize the kids on the farm and stuff. But I remember watching the TV adaptation when I was way too young to watch it in my neighbor's house. I was only like five and I remember like covering my face with the cushions of the couch. I was so scared. And then I had a recurring nightmare for years. So my home house and me, uh, there's a massive field behind the house um, which used to have crops in it. And occasionally there was a scarecrow in it. So I had a nightmare <laughs> every few months until I was like 20 as well, <laughs> not just as a child. <laughs> but I had this dream where uh, the scarecrow behind my house would come alive and chase me around my house. And it was oh the God. scariest dream no. of all time. But yeah, I was just reading this book. Really that dream, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I sleep with the light on. 
Um, but yeah, I was wondering if any any really funny dreams or any mad dream stories, like just keeping in tone, I suppose, with the book. I've no horrifically scary scary ones like the Scarecrow Smith, but um, to be honest, I actually I actually don't dream all that much. Um, but the only well, the only relatively funny one I could think of, um, myself and Claire weren't going out that long, and she was staying over, and uh. Yeah, as I said, I don't even know what the dream was, but I remember waking up screaming and uh, the first thing I did was um, just basically push her out the bed. Like uh, <laughs> I was against the wall, so pushed her out the bed onto the floor. There wasn't much of a gap on the far side of the room, so she kind of hit the wall and the floor all at once. And she hops back up. She's like, oh my God, what's wrong? What's wrong? I'm in the middle of screaming. Uh, yeah, I'll just... <laughs> It's so funny, uh, for Claire's reaction, trying to be polite and trying to be caring, um, but like Ruby woken about 2 a.m. in the morning, and I'm pretty sure I went straight back to sleep, and she was left with it, you know, fighting the fight in her life. You're lucky she ever got back. But uh, I'm honestly very surprised that she did, to be honest. <laughs> but uh, Friday or Podge, have you ready? Um, yeah, I actually just thought of one there as you were talking. I've I've kind of two, and I'll kind of briefly say both. I suppose. Um, first one was was about a year or two ago, and we were in Dingle. It wasn't Dingle. It was in Anaskal. Uh, we were staying in Anaskal. The lads were playing a, a gig in Dingle, and we were there was like six of us in a room in a, on bunk beds. And I woke up the morning we were checking out, and I woke up and the whole room was empty. And one of the lads like stuck his head in the door and was like, come on, like we have to go, we have to go. So I was like, started to panic and started to jump out of the bed. And then I woke up and I was, um, one of the lads was snoring and I jumped off the bed and I think Marty was there as well. And we started like hitting him to stop him snoring. And then I woke up again and it was actually properly woke up. And I was just in the bed and everyone was sleeping. And I was just like, what? It was, it was like, Proper inception. It was a dream within a dream within a dream. And I was uh, going to say, did you meet DiCaprio in there? Oh, <laughs> it was so, so trippy and weird. And um, yeah, that was that was very odd. And then in college, I remember I was um, in on campus and I was lying on my bed. And then I just felt this kind of twinge in my jaw. So I got up out of bed and walked to the bathroom. And Oren, you'd remember Marino campus, like the rooms. And... Uh, into the bathroom, looked in the mirror, and my whole teeth, a lot of people had these dreams, but my teeth just started, like, crumbling out of my mouth into the sink, and it was also, like, visual, and, like, you could hear the teeth hitting the sink and everything, and then I just woke up, and I was on the bed, like, you know what I mean? I was in the exact same room, and I just woke up, and yeah, that was very, <laughs> very creepy, but um, that's the only time I've ever had that dream, and then People say that's one of the most common ones, the teeth falling out. Like, I don't know if it's an anxiety or stress thing, maybe. But, I think um, it's uh, you're, if you're meant to be self-conscious or something. But I've yeah. had that in inception form as well, where I had that exact same dream. But then I woke up in my bed being like, thank God that was a dream. And then all my teeth fell out in bed. And then I woke up again when oh. I was awake. And that was, yeah, not pleasant. No. <laughs> so I must be very self-conscious, judging by that, uh, <laughs> if I'm happening twice. I really enjoyed that it wasn't just Maeve there with, with her dreams that had the kind of the touch of magic. Uh, I loved the bit of divining um, that was kind of shown with Billy and heading to the field and the knowledge that he have had. Um, I think we've all probably had those, heard those stories anyway, or um, anybody have any experiences with, with some, with getting to cure or anything like that? Yeah, I remember 
second year around Christmas, I had shingles. I was quite sick and um, had to take about two weeks off school. Like it was quite bad. And uh, but my mother knew of a woman in Navin who had the cure. So we went up to her anyway. And I always get a little bit mixed up. I, I, she she was she blessed me anyway. And I can't remember. I think she like she put like blood on me and stuff like on on the wounds and stuff but it it worked like I was it actually did cure me it was very very strange but as I was really sick I'll never forget I fell in my class in Pat's Navin and there's me in bed and I was like miserable I just get this text he's like shingle bells shingle bells and I remember being bold (laughs) with him I remember like texting back being like you have no idea how sick I am this is actually really serious I could have died man I could have you know and uh it's only like later I was like that's actually hilarious <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant, that's yeah speaking of college then I suppose that's a good place for us to jump into this book how did you guys find so I went to Galway and Podge and Oren you went to Dublin to college and Franny to Limerick Franny maybe I'll start with you like how did you find that transition could you relate to Debbie's kind of struggles it's the biggest one of the biggest things you'll ever do in life and one of the biggest changes it's funny enough because like I think really like my experience of going to college is probably nearly the other way around because like I went to UL which is quite firstly it's kind of a, ru- a rural college in that like it's it's out a bit from the city so it's kind of like a campus just kind of and it's kind of isolated and stuff so you're not really in the middle of a city like you would be in Galway or in Dublin or Cork and then it's also kind of rural in the way that like it's the students would kind of a lot of them be from like you know Kerry and Tip and and kind of like you know a lot of farming backgrounds and people that to be from out the country so it's not like I think in that way for me going to college is probably like the opposite of what happened in this book like you know it was nearly I was nearly getting more of a taste of what it's like out the country rather than in a big city the exposure to new types of people I suppose is kind of the same experience because like you know when you've been in secondary school you've only met people from you know within 10 minutes of your house in a lot of cases and then you know you're meeting people from around the country and you kind of don't realize how different it is you don't realize how different someone is that's from halfway across Ireland you know you kind of I don't know there's something educational about that I suppose but yeah I suppose in the context of Dublin it's kind of magnified in the book because it's so like imposing a place like you know if you're not used to it if you're from down the country because like I suppose I experienced this myself when I moved to Dublin then because like I'd never lived really in a big city or anything and like I remember feeling fair overwhelmed by like the Lewis even and just like getting around and like it's it's definitely a different experience and I think she gets that across very well in the book kind of that sense of being kind of a fish out of water nearly um but my first day of college I had it not as bad as Debbie now but um I missed an email from my lecturer to say that our first ever double lecture was moved location so I stood outside the wrong room with another girl for 20 minutes and we were like where is everyone this is really strange and uh, I had the misfortune doing arts for children's studies so I was a bit concerned that I'd be the only lad in the course and this girl who was lovely, we ended up being friends. I was like, no, 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 there'd be five, four or five lads. So we arrived 40 minutes late to the wrong lecture hall anyway, got a bit of a dressing down from the, the course coordinator and then found out I was the only lad in the course for the next four years. So <laughs> that was my first day in college. Debbie obviously goes to Trinity and it's, you know, big college and it's big change. And I suppose a lot of our friends would have went to UCD. And UCD, I suppose, is similar in a way. Like it's, you know, you're, it's very big and a lot of people. Whereas I went to Marino, which was a small enough college and like small numbers. I was about 120 in my year. But I knew Oren going there, but Oren was, wasn't staying on campus. Oren was commuting. Um, so I was kind of put into a house with Marty, who's on the pod. 
so I didn't know anyone really like on going that that first night and then Oren came over that evening but um I remember like I suppose Franny was kind of saying there like a lot of people have that shell shock of like like for a first time properly meeting people from all over but I suppose I was pretty experienced because I went to the Gale Talk a good bit growing up like I went to the Gale Talk from 13 up till about 17 like three or about four or five years in a row and that's brilliant education for for someone to meet people from all over the country and different personalities and all sorts and I suppose that kind of stood to me in a way so I was put in with Marty who's from uh, Donegal, Niall from Galway and it's uh, Shane from Mayo so like a proper athletic mix of country lads and the college itself was kind of very kind of country as well uh, I suppose teaching like you know a lot of people I just remember like it was it was a bit of a shell shock. I remember like cooking one night, for example, and I wasn't have cooked before going to college, properly spoiled by mammy's cooking. Like, still am, but um, I remember just being at the sink, and it just hit me one day, and I was just like, not quite a panic attack, but like pretty very anxious, being like, oh, like this is away from home, and I even though I was going home the weekend and everything, it was still like it was a big, big change. Now it was grand, and then I settled in very quickly, and I made a lot of mates very quickly, and a great time but um yeah it's just it's it's just that daunting feeling that never you never really forget that first initial change you know yeah absolutely um like it is such a massive change or and you probably have an interesting perspective on it then because obviously podge mentioned you started in marino but then you ultimately chose to go to ucd like how did you find that i had uh, two bites of the cherry and managed to fuck it up both times no oh look so oh, yeah, I started in Marino and I think starting off that I was just really unsure. And so to be honest, I spent what two or three weeks or something college and yeah. I think I spent more time in the big three than I did uh, in college. You made a few but, appearances for the football team as well. Like you, if you've I did that. You to, you, you're fairly popular leaving after a few weeks, like <laughs> the cap was mighty in fairness. Yeah. I I would have found um, Marino relatively easy. I think the issue with me at that stage was that I I did want to be doing kind of teaching and stuff. That was the tough part. Um, but the settling in, I think because as Podge was saying, it was relatively small. It's a small year. All the other years are just mad to get to know these new people who were in. So everyone was quite nice and quite welcoming. UCD was definitely a, a bigger shock to the system. As is mentioned in that book, which I thought was really funny, was the, uh, and there's roundabouts on campus. I think every culture who walks into that university says the exact same thing. Like it's, it's massive that place. When I started there, I didn't didn't have accommodation, I think it was. So I was staying in a few mates or I was getting a bus up and down. And I remember I, a week before I started there, I um, fractured my finger and ended up having to have surgery. So I walked into my first day with this big, massive cast in my hand. And just when you want to blend in a little bit, everyone starts asking you questions about your hand and what happened and what did you do? And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, just swallow me up here and I don't want to be here anymore. But even at that, I found a bit of an oasis with a few lads from Navin who were in UCD. Uh, so I got the fall back into their place and they were on campus or they were just off campus. Play with them. Uh, like as much as UCD was big, it was small as well because there was a gang of lads from Navin there. So you could kind of do what you wanted. I was a bit lucky that way, but I felt for Debbie in the book, the way she kind of walks in and I, like, I say the, the South Dublin accents. I listened to the book and the last Dublin accents in it. I thought it was very funny. And um, just the idea of the big city and people from Dublin knowing exactly what, you know, where they are and what they're doing. And you'll see there was a few people on my course who knew each other. 
And then there was just you know, me, and I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, I do not fit in here whatsoever. I don't fit in the UCD. And probably took a couple of years for that to fully wear off. Yeah, and as you say, it's, man, it's a big change, and it does it does make you, like, and you get used to it and used to all the all that comes with it. I think commuting, like, especially with Debbie staying with Dante, I thought that was a really interesting development. It is harder to settle into a place if you don't live there, I think. Like, if you're not living on campus or nearby... Yeah, on the topic is Anthony, I suppose, I think she was probably like the best character in this book for me. Because like she like I feel like she was like kind of an amalgam of a load of stereotypes in one character. Like, you know, you have this kind of South Dublin girl who's like, you know, kind of obviously affluent, but also like really socially liberal and into all these causes, and she's like a vegan, and then she has these uncaring parents, and it's kind of like nearly a mishmash of every kind of stereotype you've ever kind of thought of about like maybe I don't know what what would have been called D4s, maybe derogatorily back in the day. But like then out of that comes like this character who's like really genuinely compassionate and who's also very good friends with with Debbie by the end of it. You know, I mean, the two of them don't have any trouble getting on and forming like a close relationship. And then it's through Zanti then that you see kind of Debbie and how Debbie comes to interact with the world. And like, I don't know. So for me, like I just kind of thought the way Louise put Zanti together, I thought was very, very well done because like if. She was just such a layered character. And it was like kind of like we were saying before we started recording, is like I think mainly the thing about this book is that the characters are so good. Because as as Louise was saying before, like these characters came from other stories. So they were they were plucked from other stories, and this story was to some degree kind of molded around them. And like I think that really comes out because the characters are like they're complex and they're not easy to figure out, and there's there's good and bad in all of them. And for me, I just thought Zanti was the best one of them. I thought she was she was really brilliant. I really liked as well how she like came from the city and loved uh, like Debbie's home place in Kildare and loved like Billy and loved the crack on the farm and in the town thinking this is brilliant. Whereas like Debbie was dreading her coming and being like mortified of what she think of the house and her family and like the community and stuff. I thought that was a nice little touch. I thought actually what she said about the um, was it the freedom that. They, like the, the reason she was so taken with, with with their existence was the freedom of it and the way there was no expectation of them kind of like I thought that was quite well done yeah or and you actually mentioned some really interesting things to me when I met you for a coffee yesterday about the book that I've been thinking about since like about Orla the side character who lived with Sante and how like they kind of she's presented as being a bit stuck up or Debbie didn't really like her and Sante she was kind of like it was a bit of a drag hanging around with her but then she didn't come back to college herself because she was having these issues as well I thought that was a great as you mentioned or like making the most out of a very minor character and another thing you said yeah. to me was um it, you might want to elaborate on this you'll explain it better than me but how like maybe previous generations of Irish writers wrote about the troubles and stuff like this but Louise and other writers are very much talking about like current problems like this book kind of tackles like sex drink or relationship but like mental health college like a lot of like problems for the younger generations maybe that aren't talked about enough yeah 100 that you've, you've hit me on the head that's what i was thinking throughout the whole book with all these issues like to be honest with with the drink in college like sure i think we could all say we all went a bit too hard and there was times when you know it was for the crack and it was great banter but then there were times where it was certainly for me anyway that like i was getting on sessions that oh, jesus christ this is purely just because I'm not all that happy. Like, um, and you know, it, it wasn't serious. It wasn't, you know, I got it in check, say, but it was just that I thought it was interesting how every character in the book almost had those issues. And yeah, I just noticed it with the um, with her friend how she's not mentioned. She's a bit annoying, and then she didn't come back, so she's obviously dealing with her own little issues. So it kind of just brought to light 
you never know with people. Um, I know that kind of comment for me always gets thrown around, but you don't. You don't know what people are going through. I thought actually on on the subject of like nuance, I thought Billy's alcoholism was was quite interesting because it wasn't like it wasn't this kind of this fondness for the drink that ended up derailing everything and progressing to this place of absolute destruction, like. But it was more just a strand of his character that was, you know, troubled and that kind of served to illustrate maybe the rest of him that was kind of in trouble too. And like, I think there was a there was a quote near the start. I'm gonna have to paraphrase this because I don't have it written down, but it was something like, "Alcoholism in Ireland is socially acceptable as long as you don't get treatment for it," which I thought was very good because, like, it is true. It's like you know, as the minute you start. The minute you go to a treatment center or something, it, it kind of becomes serious in in a way. Whereas, like, and it will be viewed in that way by other people. But like, you know, there's a lot of alcoholism in Ireland that kind of maybe maybe flies under that radar, I suppose. And I thought that was she expressed that quite well with that. I thought the the comment on Tommy Tiernan was so interesting. I don't know if he's listened to the Tommy and Hector podcast. Um, yeah, it's very very entertaining and it's very funny. But it tends to kind of go into a little bit of a DMC for Tommy. Um, and there was one episode in particular where Tommy admitted to drinking a bottle of whiskey a day, kind of thing. And like the others are just kind of like they're they're like concerned friends, and it turns into like a talk about alcoholism and depression and all of this. And when you're looking at Billy there, it's yeah, like I'd like to read the book again then because I'd like when you have Tommy Tiernan in mind, you're like, yeah, that's obviously a very funny man and brilliant man but like has his demons too you know like just like billy so um yeah i thought that was very spot on from louise was there anything for anyone else to kind of stood out and um, like little elements like that or maybe themes yeah I, I just thought it was interesting when louise said that originally the book was meant to be set in america because um it's a very irish book like it's there's a lot of Irishisms throughout and I think that's one of the reasons why I liked it so much I really enjoyed it and I was really kind of relating to a lot I mean some top of my head um, examples like the country um, the county footballer in UCD I think that fella like he he only ever wore the the, the tracksuit like the county tracksuit and we all know a few lads like that we don't name we don't name any boys on the podcast but we know a few and uh, I were like that in college as well. And um, another one was like, they went to Workman's. And I don't know who says that. I think it was Orla was like, oh, you like turn into a hipster after one night. And because you went to Workman's once or something and you think you're alternative or something like that. And then it's even like little, little things like talking about the weather and crisp sandwiches. And I just really enjoyed that aspect to the book. So I, would, I thought it'd be very interesting to see what the book would have been like if Louise had gone down that road, you know? Yeah, some of the Irishisms were brilliant. Wasn't there Billy describing Trinity at the start, where he said, "It's the only college worth going to." Fairly up their own hole, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like that, I, I just thought the humour was brilliant in it. Um, the line that I just thought was so funny was when Griff was slagging uh, Debbie for getting the first-hand book, spending so much money. The guy could have got that in wherever for such and such a price, and then she slags off his jeans there, the ripped jeans. I just like that super Irish, but just I. Yeah, I was laughing, laughing away listening to it. It's great. For, for me, I found she had a great talent for kind of taking stereotypes and making like real believable, likable characters out of them. Like, you know, like as I was kind of saying earlier with Xanti and like, you know, the way she's whatever, maybe something something you would you would kind of imagine an archetypal young 
Trinity student to be. But she kind of gets behind that and makes something like really kind of human out of her. And it's the same with Debbie, I suppose. And, you know, the elements of her, her personality that are so sheltered and, and so like she finds so alien in Dublin. But then, you know, for all that, like, you know, she's not innocent either. You know, she has a kind of a, a toughness to her and, and she doesn't struggle maybe in the way that you would imagine she would. And I kind of think that the way she, the way Louise did that was just kind of very well put together, I thought. Okay, lads, I think it's time for our weekly rate expectations. Franny, uh, maybe I'll start with you. How would you rate the book and why? Um, I'm going to give it a seven. Uh, I thought it was very well, very well written. Like the language was excellent. And then the characters obviously were, were all very strong, um, very immersive, like, you know, a lot to get stuck into and a lot to consider. Um, the reason I wouldn't give it more is just because I felt it dragged in spots. Um, it, like, you know, as we probably referenced earlier on, it's not that story driven. So I feel it kind of meanders a lot um, in certain spots. Even towards the end, I found like, I felt like it was nearly going to, like the ending had nearly come four or five times before it actually came. I kept thinking it was going to end. And so, yeah, so maybe it's a small bit boring in spots, but other than that, no, a great book. I'm going to give it a, what do I do? I'll go on an eight. Um, I have to say, like, I, I really enjoyed the book. Love the characters. Um, I thought the bit of crack that was in the book was brilliant. Um, so, yeah, and I just think it was a great book. I'd recommend it to anybody to read. Um, it was super. Yeah, I would. Um, I'm just kind of torn. I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to go with an eight as well. Um Really, really enjoyed it. Kind of mentioned already, related to a lot of it. Um, found it very funny, found it very interesting. I liked the kind of the quirky magic aspect that she put into it. And I know Louise said earlier on that she didn't think it worked too well or whatever, but I thought it was, it was, it just made things a little more interesting, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, uh, overall, I would definitely recommend it. Um, I bought the hard copy, the hard copy is deadly. Uh, so it's a good one to have and yeah give it an eight overall i think uh, i'm going to give it an eight as well lads a strong eight and um, tend to even go higher uh for all the reasons you've all said i really enjoyed it and um, like funny times you can relate to where it's mentioned by coppers and babylon and as Warren said earlier night night that we've all had where there might have been a lot of drink and different things going on but just raised for me a lot of it delves into a lot of kind of societal issues or like problems facing young people in ireland and um, growing up so yeah i just loved a lot about it and the elements of mythology and magic just yeah and the character development i thought was excellent so it's a strong eight for me so that gives snowflake a 7.7 rating from laura Hour. very good yeah so that's all from us this week uh massive thanks again to louise nealon for joining us to discuss snowflake we really enjoyed it and we hope all the listeners do too uh, so we'll be back in two weeks with Another in our classic sections, we're going for Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck next, which we're looking forward to. So in the meantime, keep an eye on lairaira.com and get in touch on social media or on the website. Uh, We appreciate all feedback and all your opinions. So see you soon.